Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. It is my honor to bring in Ricardo Hausman, director of the Center for International Development at the Harvard uh, Kennedy School. He also was the head of planning in Venezuela previously uh, and has a really good window into a situation that is devastating to watch unfold. And uh, I was reading through your recent essay for Project Syndicate, which is called The Hunger Bonds. And you're talking about really the ethics of investing in Venezuelan debt uh, at a time of such a humanitarian crisis. And you said, if you are a decent human being, investing in Venezuelan bonds should make you feel mildly nauseous, borrowing a phrase from uh, former FBI director James Comey. Why? Well, because essentially you have a country that is imploding. Imports have declined by 75% between 2012 and 2016. They're further 20-some percent down in 2017. That means that there's no food, there's no medicine, there's no um, intermediate inputs for production. Uh, there's no anything. So the, the economy is imploding. Uh, the capital stock of the country is dwindling. It's being, you know... Yes. But, but I, the, the, the thing that I'm trying to connect is if a situation is so dire, mm-hmm. wouldn't you think that putting more money into it would actually help it? Well, right now, uh, markets think that Venezuela is going to go broke. And so the yield on, on Venezuelan bonds is upwards of 25%. So uh, markets are pricing in a very, very high likelihood of default. Uh, The government has decided not to default, and in order not to default, it has compressed imports. So when news comes out that imports are down, bonds rally, which means that the more Venezuelans go hungry, the better you feel about your bonds because the more dollars are left to service your debt. So debt service in Venezuela is costing around $14 billion, and total imports this year are unlikely to reach $16 billion. So essentially, you're you're in order to service the debt, you need not to import food, medicine, inputs, and that is what is keeping the government paying the debt. So are you saying that if investors stopped putting money, allocating money to Venezuela, that eventually the government wouldn't be able to wring anything more out of imports and would be forced to default. Uh, the the yes that that is that the Vene- the markets have closed Venezuela out already. Yes. So all we are talking about is trading old debt. So if you hold this old debt, what you're now asking is, so this old debt was issued at the time and the money was wasted, corrupted, etc., and got us into this mess. So if you hold Venezuelan debt, you're hoping maybe that a better government comes up and the economy recovers, and the recovery is used not to recover Venezuelan income levels, but to pay you. So you're, again, placed in a situation where your um, well-being the return on your assets depends on bad things happening to Venezuelans, and you don't want to do that. Right. There was a story uh, on the Bloomberg a couple months ago talking about how autocratic uh, dictatorships end up being fantastic investments for bondholders. Mm. And it was saying, you know, just because, you know, honestly, 
investing isn't necessarily moral. It's dollars and cents, and mm -hmm. these autocratic leaders end up paying. Well, that, that's not really true. I mean, the reason why there's impact investment is because people care about doing well, but they also care about doing good. I mean, would you put money into a company that is selling guns to drug traffickers? Uh, would you invest in, in so would you have bought uh, Hitler bonds? So there is, we are moral beings and we want to do well and we also want to do good. And, and because of that, uh, um, People choose what they are willing to invest in. You know, it's interesting that this is coming up at a time when emerging markets debt is on fire. There is there are billions of dollars going into emerging markets credit, in particular through uh, funds that seek to track the J.P. Morgan Emerging Market Bond Index. And you talk about how uh, even though Venezuela only represents 5% of the index, it accounts for about 20% of the total yield. Uh, you know, so anyone who's going into emerging markets debt right now is contributing to this. Exactly. And I want I want to save them. I think that all the other emerging markets are doing fine. I want just to take Venezuela out of the index so people are not forced into buying Venezuelan bonds, so people are not forced into these moral qualms. Well, so are there people who are demanding that J.P. Morgan remove Venezuela debt from this uh, benchmark index that is the gold standard for emerging markets credit investing? Well, I just put it out today, so let's see what they <laughs> let's say. Let's see if there's any. You know, it's it's, it's a tricky thing because at the end of the day, investors are responsible for uh, doing well by their by their clients, right? Yeah, so. and and they and you know the managers don't want to be their their bonus to be dependent on getting the Venezuela call right, because so you know you. Venezuela, everybody thought it was going to default. It didn't default. Right. And that was good for the bonds. Why did it not default? Because it starved its people. You don't want to be rejoicing in those situations. Thank you so much for joining us. Really an important discussion. Ricardo Hausman is the director of the Center for International Development at Harvard's Kennedy School, which is based in Boston, but he is here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. He also is the former minister of planning for Venezuela and former chief economist of the Inter-American Inter Inter Development Bank. Uh, really appreciate your comments. Right now, I want to turn our focus where there is a lot going on, which is the G7 meeting that is going on in Sicily this weekend. And we are going to uh, hear from President Trump as well as other world leaders about issues ranging from trade negotiations to the uh, to the environment uh, to potentially how to fight terrorism. I want to bring in, for some more perspective, Ariel Cohen, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's also director of the Center for Energy, Natural Resources and Geopolitics at the Institute for Analysis of Global Security uh, based in Washington, D.C. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us today. I would love to get your thoughts before we move into what to expect during the G7 summit. What's your evaluation so far of President Trump when he was at NATO and during this world tour? Well, let's start with the uh, good news. The world tour went, when, went well until he got to Europe. Uh, he did well in Saudi Arabia. The historic $110 billion uh, arms deal uh, hopefully will not hurt uh, our ally Israel. He did okay in Israel, uh, although there was no clarity on how to proceed on the uh, suggested uh, talks with the Palestinians. The Palestinians are not doing their fair share in terms of uh, stopping uh, incitement to violence and controlling terror. Uh, but when he hit Europe, he hit Iraq. 
Uh, Donald Trump has very strong ideas about how our allies should behave. I was reading his 1987 book, um, The Art of the Deal, uh, that he co-authored, and uh, he is clearly, uh, even back then, so that's, uh, what, 30 years ago, uh, believed that the Japanese and the Europeans are not paying uh, their fair share for defense, that they have uh, unequal uh, trade deals that hurt Americans. But uh, with all that, NATO is one of the most successful military and political alliances of, hist- of all the history. Uh, NATO has been in, in existence since uh, 1949, yeah. uh, and uh, it provided a lot of security. It's not uh, rent-a-cop. It's not that you pay a monthly fee and we provide you with our missile defenses or our soldiers. So there, there, there is a very steep learning curve in the Trump White House. Well, and, but, yes. but do you think that anything that he said jeopardized that very strong alliance? I just came back from Europe. I was in a high-level conference with the Germans, uh, primarily looking at Russia. There's a lot of disappointment. Uh, now, I would say there was a lot of disappointment with some of Barack Obama's uh, foreign policy, including in the Middle East. Uh, so uh, it's, you know, we're grown-ups. It's not very easy to satisfy each other all the time. But I would not push the Germans and the other Europeans in open forums as harshly as Donald Trump is doing right now. But I think his main issue that they need uh, – to pay in more into defense, that the fair the fair share uh, is not there. You know, right. they're not paying enough for, for the defense. That is a valid point, very valid. Okay, well, uh, Ariel, moving on to the summit that is upcoming, the G7 summit that is happening in Sicily this year, where uh, world leaders, major world leaders, get together. Not Russia, however, uh, of course. Um, what do you think is the most important thing that will be discussed, and what do you expect to come out of this meeting? Um, I think uh, European growth is anemic. Uh, they will be talking about uh, how to. Uh, get Europe beyond their 1.9 growth. The, the global growth is projected 3.5, which is okay, but you know we probably could do better in the emerging markets. I don't think they have a lot in, in terms of solutions. I think that between the Europeans, there'll be a talk uh, about how to handle Brexit. There are some harsh statements on both sides. The Europeans said, you owe us, what, $200 billion? The, uh, the uh, Brits... Uh, retaliated and responded with uh, their number. Right. Uh, but overall, uh, as usual, interest rates, deficits, right. uh, taxation, things like that, they are always uh, on the G7 agenda. You're absolutely right. Russia is not there. Why? Russia was a part of what used to be G8. Russia is not there because of their aggression in Ukraine. So do you think that Russia is going to be a conversation that uh, is going to be a difficult one for President Trump to wade into? The Europeans indicated that, with the exception of the sanctions, that they differ on Russia. Uh, but uh, Europe is split. As I said, I just uh, came back from Europe. Uh, there was uh, I was a part of the conversation uh, on Russia between U.S. and Germany. Um, I think uh, if Chancellor Merkel wins re-election, as is uh, widely expected, not just the sanctions will continue. The perception that Russia is a threat to Europe will persist in Europe. And uh, the Trump administration is split. Uh, The leaders 
uh, of our defense and foreign policy establishments understand that Russia is a threat. With the White House, maybe not so much. So uh, one other uh, point that is probably going to come up and loom large at the G7 summit is the environment and the Paris Climate Accord and environmental protections. Uh, What do you think will come out with respect to that? Uh, This is (laughs) a $64 billion question (laughs) because uh, the Trump uh, White House is very uh, climate skeptic. Uh, they are thinking seriously about pulling um, the U.S. out of the Paris Accords. Of course, the Accords are volunteer accords, and the question is, how enforceable uh, are they? And uh, I think the big divide, among other things, among besides the trade, besides the Europeans not paying their fair share for defense, is also climate. And I would hate to see our relationship with Europe deteriorating further. But Mr. Trump and his electorate have a very strong view on climate, which is very different than our uh, bi-coastal elites. The the West Coast and the East Coast elites are, of course, pro-climate change and recognize it as a major issue. And so do the European elites. So this is one of the serious fault lines when we're not staring into the abyss of the threat of the radical Islamist terrorism. All right, real quick, Ariel, on a scale from one to 10, how would you grade his international trip so far? Uh, Saudi Arabia A, Israel B plus, Europe C. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Ariel Cohen is senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Also, he is the director of the Center for Energy, Natural Resources, and Geopolitics at the Institute for Analysis of Global Security in Washington, D.C. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to the companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com lens. Right now, I want to talk about getting to the beach or the pub, uh, particularly in a car or a truck or perhaps a, uh, I don't know, a diesel train. Do they exist? I don't know. Anyway, I want to bring in uh, (laughs) someone who knows a lot more about all things oil, uh, Vincent Piazza. He is a senior equity energy analyst and global sector leader for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, focusing on oil, focusing on OPEC, which just is uh, completing their meeting. And uh, yesterday... Crude values fell out of bed. What happened? So if I recall my uh, Jesuit high school English class, uh, what's Uh the Shakespeare play? (laughs) Much Ado About Nothing? Yeah. Yeah. So, look, I I think in order to extend confidence uh, for price, there needed to be something more than just the extension of the cuts. Um, they needed, I think what the market was looking for were, were, were deeper cuts, right? You can curtail production, but actually exports rose higher 
throughout this period of time. So you still had this overflow of petroleum out there in the marketplace. So if I think about just here in the U.S., still a major importer, you had uh, petroleum, you had crude oil volumes, crude oil stockpiles quite high, roughly 26% above the five-year average. That's over 100 million barrels of extra storage that we need to flush out. And so you have this range-bound market. You know, OPEC during the during their first uh, agreement to curtail output last year set a floor for us, right? And that floor is around forty. Okay, what U.S. output and the ascendancy of U.S. output does is it puts a ceiling on that price rise because now those barrels can flow out into the global marketplace right. as well. And we've heard from four Q earnings calls and one Q earnings calls. Management teams suggesting that in that $50 range, they can push on that accelerator, complete those wells, and bring that output online. In that $60 range, we're talking about a resurgence of growth and new wells being drilled. So there you have that price range. You didn't really hear anything different in the last day or so about deepening cuts to help push dilution of the, the of, of those stockpiles, both in the U.S. and also more broadly okay, across so just, the globe. Just to put some numbers to this, so on uh, on Wednesday, uh, the, the price of crude was 51, a little more than $51 a barrel. Uh, next day, tumbling 4 point, almost 8, 5% to 48, uh, $48.90 a barrel in the wake of the expected prolonged output cuts, but not necessarily deeper output cuts. I mean, could you argue that if they had had deeper output cuts, that wouldn't have done anything? Because the higher prices go, the more shale producers just stick a, you know, the their, their foot on the accelerator. And that's the conundrum. What's the exit strategy, right? right? So this this output cut, this, this, this strategy is likely more transitory. Um, it's been engineered to prosecute other means. So for example, Saudi's IPO. Okay, and boosting the price of oil, which boosts sentiment, which would boost the reception for that IPO. But you're still in this range. And we've talked about this for several months, several quarters, every time I'm on the show. It's consistent, right? You have this tight range because you have this output from the U.S. that can respond more quickly than perceived to any price signal. So. What could break us out of this range? Because, you know, we, I remember running into you, uh, getting a cup of coffee, and, and you said, you know, a lot of people haven't lived through a true cycle. This is not a cycle high and low. We're in a range, but it does break out eventually, and it yeah. could go and way higher or way lower. And, and, it's, and it's demand-centric. It's sustained demand-centric. You know, the Chinese filling their SPR, that is not a sustained demand trajectory, right? And if you think about the broader scope, if you think about car efficiencies— um, better, better mileage, right? That reduces that that demand cadence. So, in, other in, words, in a way. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, given that the move is toward electric vehicles, is toward being less uh, less focused on oil as a a use for and a, a a motive of getting energy. Given that, I mean, isn't demand only going to go down from here? I would say the demand growth will be more curtailed. And so that price range will be more, will be tighter. And to the lower side. For longer. And likely to, so lower relative to where we were in 2014 and where we were in 2007 relative 
to, to that period, yes, it'll be lower. But that, but that tighter range, that 40 to 60 tight range, really speaks to the paradigm shift that we've been seeing. So uh, real quick, I know we are heading into Memorial Day weekend, and does, uh, does gas demand really pick up that much? So again, we talk about this, this, this concept of more fuel-efficient vehicles, right? And if you just think about the mild winter, and the mild winter, actually, we've seen uh, uh, vehicle miles traveled tracking above the five-year high, okay? Uh, the, I'm sorry, the five-year average, right? So more folks in the road. Now, consumption for the summertime will likely rise maybe about 1%, but you have many more vehicles on the road. So right. that does speak to the fuel efficiency. Now, that mix, and I talked to our uh, autos analyst, uh, Kevin Tynan, uh, and he suggests that that new sales mix, that new vehicle mix, is tilted more toward the light, ve- light truck side. Right. So there could be some additional fuel consumption but again relative to where you were in prior periods it's a much more fuel efficient vehicle yeah and so that consumption is likely not to budge that much but it should be higher relative year over year just because of the mild winter that the mild winter we had and also the outlook for the summertime Vincent Piazza, thank you so much for joining us. Always a wonderful thing to talk with you. Vincent Piazza is Senior Equity Energy Analyst and Global Sector Leader for Bloomberg Intelligence. You know, I've, I've got to say, I was kind of surprised to realize just how big the market for auctioning off heavy industrial equipment is. Ravi Salagram joins us now. He's chief executive officer for Ritchie Brothers, which uh, is the leading uh, auctioneer of this equipment uh, in the world. Ravi joins us now from Burnaby, Canada, which is a suburb of Vancouver. Ravi, thank you so much for joining us. First, uh, congratulations. I know that you uh, just recently announced that you would be going ahead and acquiring Iron Planet for almost a billion dollars, $758.5 million. Uh, and now that you rank as a 50 top 50 e-commerce company, I would love you just to give me a sense of how big this market is for auctioning off heavy industrial equipment. Lisa, thank you so much. Uh, the auction market is about $360 billion globally, and uh, it uh, encompasses um, sectors such as construction, transportation, which is over-the-road trucks, agriculture, oil and gas, and mining. And there are different channels through which uh, used equipment, and the $360 billion is used equipment that gets sold through these channels. So very large so how do, these, how do these auctions work? I mean, I, I was joking with, with my producer earlier that I think of like Pawn Stars, you know, people coming with their tractors up to a, uh, up to a, up to a uh, window and saying, hey, you know, how much can you get for this? Uh, but how does it work, really? No, uh, <laughs> I think it's actually a little bit more sophisticated than that. Uh, so we, um, uh, Richie Brothers has been the pioneer in what is called as an unreserved auction, which is that everything will sell no matter what. And we uh, uh, have auction yards around the world. We have 44 yards. And these auctions are unique in the sense that they're both live as well as online. So they're integrated, and people uh, can call from all over the world or uh, book or uh, uh, make purchases online as well as bid on site. Uh, 
So we've got that unique integrated model. And we merchandise our equipment on our yards. It's like a Picasso picture. Our people do a beautiful job. There's <laughs> like 10,000 pieces. So think about it as dozers and tractors all over uh, the yard. And buyers, potential buyers, come, kick the tires, look at the equipment. We also provide information so people can look at it online. Yeah. And then an auctioneer... Um, much like any other uh, industry, will auction off those items. And we could sell potentially a $3 million crane in less than 60 seconds. Wow. So uh, what is the most popular item to get sold? Well, uh, construction is uh, uh, our sweet spot. Uh, We do things like excavators and uh, uh, wheel loaders, uh, dozers. So the gamut of it and all things that go into really bridge building, roadworks, and so in many ways, we think of Ritchie Brothers as enabling building of the world, uh, but also with agricultural equipment, farming. So, yeah. uh, so it's really a company that we feel very good about, that our people are enabling commerce. So I, I'm trying to understand whether your business stands to gain during periods of ramped up infrastructure or if, uh, you know, wh- when, when your company does best, what part of the cycle? Well, interestingly, Lisa, it's uh, we do well in good times and do well in not so good times as well. And uh, in good times when the economy is doing well, when there's infrastructure spending, uh, new equipment production is at a peak and people like to buy new, eventually that convert, gets converted to used equipment, so we benefit from that. When times like we had the oil and gas crisis last few years, we were the beneficiaries because the people get uh, dislocated and they want to um, uh, sell their equipment, and we then are able to help our uh, customers dispose of their equipment and get the best values. Right. And we get the best, best values because of our knowledge of pricing. We're known as the foremost authority on used equipment pricing, and that helps us get the best deals despite the fact that we're an unreserved auction. Who are the sellers? Uh, the sellers are, uh, the majority for Ritchie Brothers are end users. Uh, these are people who are general contractors uh, who might be in bridge building, roadworks. So um, these are people that are entrepreneurs, and we have tremendous respect for them. Many of them have grown with us, and we've grown with them. Right, but so it's a, yeah. I'm ahead. just trying to understand why they'd want to sell their equipment, right? I mean, like, what, what would drive them cool. to have too much and then to want to offload some of it? Well, I think um, contractors like to optimize their fleets. So after a certain number of hours, or let's say the equipment is three years old, they want to get in new equipment or they've finished a job and there's a lull between the next job. So they don't want to build up inventories. So that's why they want to dispose it off. So it's a replacement. And, you know, they can also take it into a dealer and trade it in. But uh, Ritchie Brothers has trusted relationships, and because of our ability to give them great values, uh, they come to us. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's a fascinating industry and uh, one that is much bigger than I had imagined it to be, $360 billion globally. Ravi Salagram, he is the chief executive officer of Ritchie Brothers, coming to us from Burnaby, Canada. That is a suburb of Vancouver. And uh, Ritchie Brothers just got clearance from the Department of Justice for their $758.5 million acquisition of Iron Planet. Uh, and it is one of the top 50 e-commerce companies in the world. Really interesting industry. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.